Previously on Mafia. Roy DeMeo and his crew had made a killing for murder. By becoming the Mafia's go-to disposal unit, they had gained respect and notoriety. He'd take in any contract. Like I said, he took a contract in for the Westies, which made them boss of the West Side. So in actuality, the Westies were kicking money up to Roy, and Roy was kicking money up to Nino. DeMeo had his hands in the stolen car ring, as well as in pornography and drugs. Uh, Roy was the, the person who got things done on the street. He was the earner. He was the one that was involved in the business and was the one to see that if there was any risk that business, he could roll his sleeves up and do what was necessary to protect the family. But the police were starting to take notice. And DeMeo, or one of his crew, was bound to make a mistake. Chris Harvey Rosenberg thought he was going to be uh, a made man, and this would never happen. This is Mafia. Most of the victims of the murder machine had been discreetly disposed of, their bodies hidden in the massive Fountain Avenue landfill. But there was one very public murder. Andre Katz. Walter Mack, a prosecutor at the time, said investigating the mob was frustrating. So, I mean, I don't really know, nor did we expend much time and effort finding out, you know, why the, a successful prosecution of those people, uh, you know, wasn't able to happen because it was a pretty wild place in which law enforcement was not widely respected. And, and people like DeMeo could, could function pretty much unmolested. Much of the police force was not interested in investigating Katz's murder any further. But Detective Joe Wendling was convinced there was a connection between this murder and the rampant car theft. Katz had been a car thief after all. And I always went to my boss, and sometimes I had to get down on my hands and knees and beg him is to let me look into... The homicide. He says, oh, why do you want to do that? It's going to create uh, headaches within the borough because it means going out to that detective precinct and asking for all their records, and they don't like to do that. They don't like an outside agency coming in. Wendling, a detective with the attorney's office rather than the NYPD, was not taken seriously. But the auto crimes unit at the NYPD was overstretched, and the FBI were not interested in localized car crime. With the authorities out of the picture, the Mayo's criminal empire boomed. 77,000 cars were stolen in New York City in 1974 alone. By 1979, the carjacking empire was now national. It was known as the Empire Boulevard Operation. The, the, the car theft business became so lucrative so what they would do is, under a fictitious name, rent a factory, a warehouse, open it up, and the skeletons of the cars would be in place in there, and then just let go. And then all of a sudden, auto crime would be notified they got a warehouse of skeletons. And there's nothing they could do. All the parts were gone by that time. But Detective Wendling was still determined to explore the link between car thefts and the disappearances. Finally, he was given permission to investigate. You know, the boss granted me my favor. I developed an informer that said, look at the uh, amount of car thieves that are disappearing. He says it's the testers and they're, they're killing them. 
one after another. And basically that's how we started. And it, the main thing that got everybody's curiosity is, again, I come back to the Andre Katz boss. I think they're cutting them up. And that's why we're not finding them. And he says, do you want to go with that? Uh, go ahead. And we did. And as I started, uh, I developed this informer who says, it's all stemming from the stolen cars. Wendling's informant had given him an idea as to how things might be connected, but still didn't quite understand. Then he got lucky. He met someone who had been working on car thefts in Queens. So one day, sitting down for the sergeant's exam in Queens, I sat, I, I sat down to uh, a guy that introduced himself as a cop that works for auto crime. And this officer was John Murphy. And in talking with John, we found out we had a mutual interest, both being in the Marine Corps. And I told him, you know, I, I got a car situation that they're involved in stolen cars, but I don't really know what they're doing or how that organization end works. I says, can you explain it to me? And he said, sure, no problem. I had a cup of coffee with him and I sparked his interest, especially when I named the players. And I went up to his office and we talked down to his boss. I said, listen, I'm involved in this. You're in Queens, I'm in Brooklyn. Can John work with me on this? And we work together on this because I think it's gonna make you happy and it's gonna make my boss happy. I'm involved in the murders. You're involved in a stolen car organization. So let's cut the pie up. And he agreed. Wendling and Murphy contacted the Organized Crime Task Force of the Queens District Attorney's Office to help them. They found that one of the Queens detectives, Kenny McCabe, had a detailed knowledge of the local mafia. Kenny was the intelligence officer of the DJ's office. He maintained all the organized crime files. Kenny would tell us who's the boss, who they're talking to, and he could identify all, all the players. The three detectives used their different skills together to get the information they needed. Oh, when Kenny went out with us, I Kenny said, oh, I'd love to know who's in that car. Did you want to know? Watch, we'll find out. When the guy didn't use his left hand turn directional to make a turn, I pulled the car over. We all got out, we all identified ourselves. I said, let me see your driver's license and registration to this vehicle. Oh, by the way, you in the back seat, get out. And we made them get out, make them all identify us. I said, can you see how it is easy? So anytime we want to go out here, we do car stops. That's what we would do. And this was like unheard of. This is like going one step out. Detectives don't do car stops, but we did it because we found it a tremendous useful tool. But it, and they got annoyed. I mean, we stopped one guy so many times, he actually threw his keys up in the air and he said, lock me up, do something, but stop these car stops. And, you know, because it also looks like you're talking to us. And that you didn't want. If it looked like you were talking to us, you would be killed within that week. Kenny informed Wendling and Murphy that the local mafia hangout was the Gemini Lounge. And it was owned by thug Roy DeMeo, who was also involved in car crime. Joe Coffey is a former NYPD detective. Gemini Lounge was a barroom where the auto crime individuals hung out. That was their place. It's in Canarsie, Brooklyn, which is right near, the, ironically, the Fountain Avenue dump. And this place was used as their headquarters, Roy DeMeo's crew. 
which included several guys who were all auto crime individuals. Some of them were involved in selling narcotics, and they were all involved in auto crime and murder at the behest of Roy DeMeo. The detectives suspected that the club was not just a local hangout, but a mafia headquarters. But without a warrant, they couldn't search the property. Meanwhile, DeMeo returned to business as usual after the death of Rosenberg. He remained popular with his Gambino family boss, Paul Castellano, because of his specialist skills and because he was making a lot of money. And Roy was one of the biggest money producers. I mean, he, he was from narcotics. He was on the board of a credit union. Uh, he had uh, pornography. Uh, and he had a tremendous loan shark book out there. They estimated almost $2 million. In fact, DeMeo was so important to Castellano that it may have saved his life. In late 1979, two capos, a father and son, James Eppolito and Junior, came to Castellano with a complaint. DeMeo and his boss Nino Gaggi were involved in drug running. In the Mafia, this transgression was often punished with death. But Castellano sided with Gaggi and DeMeo and instead ordered the pair to kill the Eppolitos. And the order was sent down to Nino Gaggi, kill him. So Nino trusted his right-hand man, his top killer, Roy. So they set up a Mina with a father and son. They had them in the car, but the father realized, uh, this is not going to turn out well. And with that is, is uh, Roy turns around and shoots the son, and Nino shoots the father. And if you've ever been in a car with a firecracker go off, a ballot was enough to blow their eardrums, so they had to have the windows open. Unfortunately, a local off-duty policeman was driving by and heard the gunshots loud and clear. Uh, a sergeant trying to raise money and his off-hours driving a cab sees the flash and everything stops and winds up in a big shootout. Nino gets shot, Roy escapes. DeMeo had made it out of the shootout, but Gaggi was not as lucky. He was shot and arrested. Gaggi had bribed his way into a reduced sentence from attempted murder. He was later convicted of assault, much to the frustration of prosecutor Walter Mack. I don't know that it's fair. I think in many ways the DeMeo crew was successful in, in uh, overcoming the criminal justice system in the States. For that case alone was worthy of every effort that the Mayo crew could bring to bear to, to frustrate the system. And Patrick Penny, who was the witness, who was one of the witnesses, basically was killed and shot, was hunted down and killed. It was extremely frustrating for the FBI. DeMeo was skirting their every attempt to get him and the car ring off the streets. Then they made a key breakthrough. In 1980, a customs official working the docks spotted a consignment of cars destined for Kuwait. It looked like the cars had been stolen and given new registration documents. The intelligence quickly led to a warehouse. Here's what the auto crime uh, cartel would do in this city, and it's still being done on a limited basis today because there's not as much car theft as there used to be. And they would steal the cars from the airports. And if somebody in Kuwait wanted a luxury American car, 
they would steal on order the exact car they wanted, the model, the year, and the whole routine, and ship it to Kuwait at four times the price that you would pay for it here. Now, if they wanted, now, when they have these cars, they go over there, the American luxury cars, or even Jaguars, which are English cars, any luxury car you need parts for eventually. So what they started to do then was steal the cars and chop them up and sell the parts at 10 times the price. I mean, it was a very lucrative business. The FBI raided it to find that it was, in fact, full of stolen cars. A fingerprint at the scene pointed to the DeMeo crew. It just uh, showed you the scale of the case. I mean, this, this was, this now became an international case. I mean, this guy is such an entrepreneur of stolen cars. I mean, you might say what he did for murder, he did the same for cars. Here was a mafia family, not only selling stolen cars in Brooklyn, but shipping them out to another country. I mean, this was uh, unheard of. Nobody had uh, thought they could be that organized to do that. And that's why at that point in time, it became very interesting to everybody. And everybody wanted a piece of the cake. The sheer scale of the Empire Boulevard operation got the law enforcement much more interested. Detective Wendling says it was now that they started to more diligently look into the possible connection between the thefts and the murders. Now, as the murders grew, the detective bureau decided to send their liaison to oversee the investigation. Uh, as the, it grew internationally, it was no longer in the capable hands of the police department. We had to bring in the feds. And there was only certain feds that would come in because Walter would run a name by us. And we knew of the person. The person had a great reputation. And that's how it, it really took off at that point. By 1982, the pressure on DeMeo was stepped up. A new task force moved into offices at Foley Square in New York to take over the case. It was headed by top-shot prosecutor Walter Mack. Walter is such a total uh, attorney. I mean, when he develops a case against you, after he's developed the case, he then tries to focus as a defense attorney, and he goes to rip his own case apart. And when he starts ripping it apart, he gives his instructions to, all right, here's what we gotta do, we gotta fix this, we gotta get this more information on this, we gotta do this and do that. I mean, the, the man just throws himself into a case with his full soul. Mac was put in charge of getting the car racket case together. Mac says his main task was to bring all the crime agencies together under one roof. Of federal, state, local, city, investigators, all of whom remain very good friends who are still with us uh, today and others who've passed on, who felt that this was a labor of love. And it was a commitment to the victims, the moms, the husbands, the wives, the brothers, the sisters, that it was time to bring justice to this situation. And that's what kept them going. As Mac continued the investigation, it became very clear that what had started as a large-scale car crime case was turning into something much bigger. And what happened in the next six months to a year was an extraordinary combination of motivated investigators 
some of whom, you know, I never would have met under any other circumstances, many of them local local investigators, um, who felt strongly that the individuals in the crew had evaded responsibility for truly heinous acts, and they were looking for some means and mechanism of perhaps drawing it all together. Slowly and surely, Mack and his team were building the case against the DeMeo crew. Two members, Richard DeNome and Henry Borelli, were arrested for the car theft ring. DeMeo allegedly told them to plead guilty as to close the case, but that's not what happened. But the crew at that time was so paranoid about that somebody might cooperate that he and I think it was two or three other individuals were shot and killed in their home like a week or so later, 10 days days later is what it boils down to. The crew was getting suspicious that everything would come crashing down and that someone would turn on them. And someone did. In 1980, the FBI received a phone call from a new informer who identified himself only as Harry. Soon enough, Harry was revealed to be Vito Arena, who had formerly been part of the DeMeo crew as a car thief. Joe Coffey was sent to deal with Arena himself. I get a phone call from a friend of mine knowing what I'm investigating regarding the organized crime hits and knowing that Vito Arena was part of it. So he says, they got Vito Arena in the jail in Brooklyn. If you get him tonight, he's going to be a wealth of information. Arena and his boyfriend, Joey Lee, left the crew after facing discrimination. The crew were largely homophobic. They returned to their life of armed robbery. Not long after that, the two were arrested at a stick-up, and Arena decided to play the informant. And we take him into Manhattan on a Sunday night with nobody there except the U.S. attorney and us, and we sit him down and we tell him what we want. We want all the information about the chop shops and the homicides. Long story short, we say to him, we tell him what we want, and we ask him, what do you want in return? He says, I don't want anything in return. He's a homosexual. And he said, all I want is to be in a cell with my lover, Joey Lee. That's a quote. So I look at the U.S. attorney, he looks at me, and he goes, that's an easy one. We can do that very easily. No money involved, no freedom, no nothing. Arena began to tell Detective Joe Coffey and prosecutors about the intricate murder machine, and their jaws dropped. Anyway, Vito Arena sits us down for the next week and a half and fills us in on every homicide they did and how they did them and how they cut the bodies up. To the extent where he even told us that it's easy to cut a body up. He says the hardest part of the body to cut is the elbow. because of all the grizzle around the elbow. He says the easiest part of the body to chop up is the head. The head snaps off like a pencil. This is what he's telling us. And we're like in awe of this guy. We never heard anything like this in our lives. And he tells us all about Roy DeMeo. And Roy DeMeo being a guy behind the situation. Arena went all in and offered to bring the detectives to the body of one of DeMeo's victims, Joe Scorney. Now, Vito Arena was part of the hit. They had to kill Joe Scorney because they were afraid he was going to become a rat because he had a narcotics problem. So they lure him to the chop shop in Canarsie. They bring him in, they kill him, 
and they put his body into a 55-gallon drum. They put him in, and his head was sticking out, and they couldn't get the head to go down. So they took a shovel and chopped his head off. They chopped his head off while it was in the barrel. He was dead already. And they took the head and put it next to the body, then filled the 55-gallon drum with concrete and covered it. Put it on a truck and drove it to Long Island to a place called Mastic Beach in Shirley, Long Island, and put the 55-gallon drum into the water. Now, we're getting this information three years later. So I take my troops and we go out to Shirley, Long Island, where Mastic Beach is. And we bring on New York City's Police Department scuba team with us. Comes up about 10 minutes later, says, uh, there's about 20 55-gallon drummers down here. <laughs> Which one? I said, the one you can't move. So he finds it. And by this time, the concrete had dissipated from the salt water. And he finds a bone in the drum. So we got to wait three hours for the medical examiner. He finally shows. He comes. Now, Vito Arena had given us a description of this guy, Joe Scorning. We find the body. It was all skeletal now, right? And there's the dungaree jacket, dungaree pants, and the wallet in his jacket. The unprecedented find helped Detective Coffey solve multiple disappearance cases. And as a result, Detective Wendling was sent to the Gemini Lounge to confront DeMeo. The idea was to intimidate him into either confessing or to turn informant. So, they knew Roy was involved in so many murders so many killings that he could he would be a wealth of information to the police but DeMeo would not be swayed instead he tried to bribe the officers yeah Roy said you're gonna take me down you guys your old timers why do you want to get involved in it a million dollars Swiss bank account wife's name give me the former go live like a king I said turned around to Roy and I said, I'd sooner take you out of the trunk of your car. I said, but come with us and I'll save your life. He said, I'm a good soldier. I'm in the mob and when they call me, I'll go like a good soldier. I says, okay, I'm looking for that day to take you out of the trunk of your car. With the case coming together well and evidence building up, it seemed like it was only a matter of time before DeMeo would have his day in court. Along with Arena were two other key witnesses, Freddie DeNome, brother of Richie, and Gaggi's own nephew, Dominic Montiglio. Dominic, as uh, was the nephew to Nino Gaggi. Now, what uh, Nino would do was, if he wanted the message to deliver down there, he would lose his nephew, Dominic. And that's how Dominic went down there, and he got involved with them. And uh, Nino thought it was a good place for his son to start to learn, I mean, for his nephew to start to learn the trade. And uh, Dominic was not only an informer, Dominic was an eyewitness. It seemed like the evidence was stacked against him. But as the trial date approached, Roy DeMeo went missing. The police searched for DeMeo. Informants said he was last seen on the streets looking paranoid and heavily armed. Then a call came in. DeMeo's Cadillac had been found dumped in a parking lot behind the Veruna Boat Club in Brooklyn. And uh, 
I said, when you find Roy, which you're going to find him, please don't open a trunk until I'm there. He says, no problem. So they said they found Roy's car. They were bringing it into the motorcycle. They called me here at the house. I says, I'm on my way. Don't pop that trunk until I get there. See, because I told him I'd take him out of the trunk, and I want to live up to that. So I went down there. When they popped the trunk, there was Roy, frozen to a chandelier. And I said, man, what a tribute to us. They killed him. They killed this man who was such a moneymaker to them. Roy DeMeo died the way he lived, as a street rat in a fetal position in the trunk of a car. DeMeo had been shot seven times and left in a freezing car for a couple of days. The obvious question, who might have carried out the hit? For the law enforcement team, the Gambino boss, Paul Castellano, was the man with the most motive. Roy DeMeo was killed because Paul Castellano decided he was a liability. They realized we were getting close to him, to DeMeo, and they felt that if we were able to arrest him and incarcerate him and turn him into an informant, he would have brought the whole empire down. Castellano was right to be afraid. Even though he was dead, DeMeo had left plenty of damaging evidence that could bring down the family. And with so many former allies turned rat, he couldn't risk any more exposure. When these mob people and these stone killers like Roy DeMeo are done away with by a homicide or by accident or however it happens, to me, that's a day for celebration. But in my business, it was more conducive to our goals to have them live so we could roll them and make informants out of them and go to the next step. So the only, the only remorse I would have about finding a scumbag like Roy DeMeo dead would be that we eliminated him as an informant. There is no sympathy or empathy or anything like that from anybody in law enforcement, including myself. It is still unknown who exactly pulled the trigger. Many believe it was the notorious hitman Richard the Iceman Kuklinski. Other reports say Castellano gave the order to DeMeo's own crew members. Or it may have been Gaggi himself. Soon after, the task force raided the Gemini Lounge. Even with Arena's testimony about how the murders were carried out, what they found was still a shock. So based on the information that we got from all these people, we went to the courts and we got a search warrant. The search warrant to search that premises, that apartment. Now we go in, now we're into that, whole, into that apartment and we're working on the information that was given to us, including the bodies were cut up in the bathtub and the blood was drained in the bathtub. So we whip out all the drains with the search warrant. We call our people in and we take the bathroom apart and in the drains we found the blood. Blood never goes away, contrary to what you might see on television. If the blood, if blood is in pipes and a wall, the blood will remain there forever and identifiable. So we were able to do that. We were able to match the blood with the victims and the criminals and the whole routine. That's how we made our case. This evidence led the team to DeMeo's boss. The case evolved into U.S. versus Gaggi. And Paul Castellano, despite now being the head of the Gambino family, wasn't safe either. He, too, was called to face trial. And like DeMeo, Castellano wouldn't make his court date. Well, Paul Castellano was murdered. 
And the way he was murdered is interesting. He, he was on trial for the actual case that involved Nino Gaggi and Joey Tester and the whole auto crime crew and Roy DeMeo and everybody. And uh, he was in court and I'm the one who arrested him. So we would have a conversation in the hallway. And uh, during the course of that trial, he goes to his lawyer's office and they sit in the office, they have the conversation about the case that's going on in the federal court. And he heads to dinner. Castellano was set to have dinner at Sparks Restaurant at Midtown Manhattan, but a hit team was waiting outside. So it was a setup. They bring him up there and they whack him as he's getting out of his car. The hit was widely attributed to the next boss, John Gotti. But with Castellano gone, it was the remnants of the DeMeo crew and Gaggi who ended up standing trial for the remaining murders, including that of car thief Andre Katz. This case was not some case that was built overnight, done in a week. It was years of investigating, talking to informers, sending guys to Kuwait, and with the hard work of Walter Mack, it was a magnificent case. It didn't get the publicity it should have. Gadgie was found guilty of the car thefts and went on to be prosecuted for the murders. But it was DeMeo who had spearheaded the whole thing. And though the trial was for 25-count murders, only a fraction of his murders have ever been solved. The truth is, we will never know the real number. Roy bragged about 150 individuals, and I would say we're somewhere between 150 to 200 is probably an accurate number. And, you know, we had people calling us, you know, about their daughter that disappeared, you know, hang on at the bars or stuff like that, you know, and as to which we had no information. And, and uh, you know, it was one of those situations where I think Roy was extremely efficient and vicious in protecting his turf. And, you know, as happened many times, or numerous times, people would be killed because they happened to accompany a target of the crew. As far as giving victims justice, that's kind of nebulous. How can you ever accomplish that? I'm of the school thinking that there is no such thing as closure for the families of victims. Roy DeMeo was as guilty of serial killing as any serial killer that we've had in this country, including the son of Sam, David Berkowitz. He was a serial killer. He killed more people than David Berkowitz did. He killed more people than Ted Bundy did. Not only did he kill them, he cut their bodies up and defamed them and their humanity forever. This was a vicious, evil human being. If you could call him a human being, I wouldn't even call him that. In the next episode, before there were gangsters, before there was the mafia, there was one hustler who found that the way to make money was to have his hands in all the pots. But Rostin was probably, if not the first, one of the first to realize the economic opportunity that prohibition presented to him and thereby other criminals as well. So you're talking about somebody with his involvement in every single step of the illegal alcohol trade, which is every single step offers you, of course, more profit. So he became very rich very quickly. Arnold Rothstein was known for his clever tactics and personal style. 
He was not a crude or violent person who could not make his way in the upper world. He was the kind of man who had the skills to be successful in the upper world. He'd probably have a hedge fund today. And also, for one of the most lucrative sports gambling fixes in history. And the story goes that he is approached by a man in the derby smoking a cigar one night on the street and said, if you know what's good for yourself and you know what's good for Mrs. Williams, you will lose that game and you will lose it very, very early. And that is exactly what happened to Claude Williams and the White Sox the next day. And the fix goes into the history books. This has been an Audio Boom and World Media Rights co-production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Ben Hosley, Rachel Jacobs, Casey Georgie, and Karen Bevan, and by Pascal Hughes for World Media Rights. We had additional production help from World Media Rights by Gerald Zibengwa and James Tyndale. David McNabb is the series creative director, and the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Best Fiends, Feel CBD, and Parcast's Villains for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. <laughs>